Everything's looking very orderly there. All right. Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 021, Conversation with Mr. Wesley Shantz, number two. Looking like we might be able to do this on sort of a regular basis if, uh, well, Mr. Wesley Shantz continues to be amenable and if the listeners keep listening in. And welcome yeah. back. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for the Friday night time that we did last time. You know, it's close enough. Saturday morning, sort of the same same ballpark. Yeah. 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 So I, I like the idea of, of having it at a regular time. Friday night is generally a good one. The only problem yesterday is that um, a friend of mine who I, I have a regular conversation with on Friday uh, afternoons between um, Frisbee with the students and uh, just make, making it home. I usually have a, a conversation with him about um, the Old Testament. He's a, he's a theologian. Oh. And so he gives me a lot of great historical insights, linguistic insights, and just insights into that text. And the reason why I, I do that with him is not for a religious reason, but because I teach Dante. And it, uh, my, my history of the Near East, its mythology, its theology, and its cultural traditions is far weaker than my understanding of the uh, Greco-Roman tradition. So he really fills in a lot of gaps. But the idea was that I thought that I wouldn't have enough left after a day of teaching, talking to him to then talk to you. But you know what? If Dante's right, that charity and giving is essentially, you know, love is real love and the real expression of desire, then, you know, why not? And Friday night, Friday night lights, football games are nice on Friday. Why not good big spectacular conversations full of insights i I like that uh analogy of the the conversation to a big game and um and how you get warmed up beforehand with uh yeah other other kinds of conversation especially since you know i don't think i don't think i know enough history to really make that one of our main topics uh normally so you'd kind of be doing a uh, at least a different topic in in uh in your conversations before and then with uh on here uh yeah. but i i guess that's that's something i wanted to ask you about was uh listening to some of these uh iliad lectures um it seems like you do have a a decent grasp of the historical context for that um well, yeah and and so uh i was curious about how much how much you you sort of actively seek that out uh, for its own sake, like the history, I mean, and how much of that is more little anecdotes and things that you pick up in reading about, uh, you know, reading the, the commentaries and, uh, and analyses of, uh, of Homer that you, that you clearly have a pretty good mastery of. That's funny. That's, well, thank you for asking for one. And for two, that's, that's just such an incredibly pleasant thing to hear because, um, you know, I, I'm always teaching the students and they don't, they don't grasp exactly what it is they're hearing. They enjoy what they're hearing and they love the class, but it, they can't give me feedback like saying, wow, you've clearly encountered the scholarship to such a degree that you've started to master some aspects of Well, it. look, man, yeah, like the scholarship, that's something I really, I'm pretty uh, much naive about you know, scholarship, but I know enough of it to know how much is out there and just like there's the vast, the vast conversation, right. That's been had about this book. It's, it's definitely, it's like, it's like a conversation, right. Oh, yeah. And that you can enter into it, but you can't really enter into that conversation until you listen for a long time. Oh, yes. Just repeat some stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Well, the thing is, um, I started learning the scholarship because when I first started teaching Homer, and you might imagine this is how all teachers feel. Well, you won't have to imagine that this is how all teachers yeah. feel. You can, you can give me feedback on this. I felt a bit like a fraud and not like a fraud in that I didn't have some understanding of what I was saying, but are you still there? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay, good, just making sure. And uh, not that, I knew that I had something to say, but I knew also that what I didn't have to say was far larger a quantity of information than what I did know. So I just, I just frantically started reading everything. And with Homer scholarship, there, there are some really good compendia that are just simple and easy to get, like the Cambridge Companion to Homer. And also there's a companion to Ancient Epic put out by Blackwell that you can get. And I don't know, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And I've spent the last five years doing that while I've been teaching it. And so there's just been a really nice positive feedback loop on that, that every time I learn something neat from some piece of scholarship, which I'm then very much interested in because it talks about something that I teach, it then gives me something interesting to teach to the students, which they appreciate, which makes me want to go back and get more. Right, right. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so it seems like there's there's a definite uh, uh, upward spiral there. Of, yes, um, yes, yeah. but also how I keep myself from simply becoming over um over focused on some aspect of the scholarship is that i'm always still reading say the jung and the carl and the jungians and the eric neumanns and the jordan b peterson so that i'm still looking right. for the heart of the stories as well but that i can i can root my more creative analyses and some hard facts as well um yeah. and, not, and now you know due to the work of peterson and some of his colleagues not only facts in you know literary scholarship but Facts in, you know, brain psychology and human evolutionary development. Um, it's fairly yeah. like, like, for instance, I can answer questions about why do we throw spears and rocks at people by saying that we always take aim at something from the most concrete levels to the most abstract. And that's due to J.J. Gibson's book, A Visual Approach or The Visual Approach to uh or an ecological, the ecological approach to visual perception. And he sort of lays it out that you can't even see without aiming. And so you can even see that in the Iliad because they're constantly throwing things at each other, both insults and javelins. And you can see that Homer, at least in a naive way, is there showing that what's happening with the spears is also happening with the voices. And that yeah. that's a pattern that has abstracted itself. And so you might also say that that's what's happening with the humans and the gods at the same time, that it's a pattern ah. that's abstracted itself um, because something he's always clear to say. And so just to jump in to talking about book four for one second is that sure. a claim I made, or rather a claim Homer makes is that the Achaeans are more disciplined and silent, whereas the Trojans are more diverse, don't speak one language and are louder. And then immediately after that, he says, Athena was with the Trojans, Ares was with or excuse me, Athena was with the Achaeans and, the, and the Ares was with the Trojans, suggesting that those aspects of the Achaeans which make them successful abstract into the image of Athena, discipline, competitiveness, rank order, um, uh, confidence, whereas those, those attributes which identify or uh, signify or are embodied by, there we go, the Trojans are uh, those which make up Ares conflicting tongues um too yeah. much uh no unity uh um, um superficiality 
uh, over substantiality, a desire for conflict rather than a desire for victory, I would say is a major difference. Yeah, so that's okay. So something I was curious about asking you was uh, about this um, this dynamic of the siege. You know how the yes. uh, and it's it's about to flip around, right? The uh, the Trojans are about to come yes. burn some ships, but but there's this this kind of directionality of the uh, the heroic image where normally the hero's attacking the dragon. The dragon's in its cave or in its you know deep dark place, whatever. Yes. And so and it's like a going forward and combating and um, and then on the other hand, there are a lot of stories out there, heroic stories of the hero being pinned in a in a in a tight place and having to um, defend it. You know, uh, having to, and that's actually something that you see in a lot of the Norse uh, sagas, like the Icelandic uh, sagas. There, there's you know a hero who's um, either figuratively or literally in a tight place. You know, has to make a decision about who to support or is literally you know being attacked in his house and, and has to, has to fight. Um, yeah, and you know, often, that's, that's, yeah, go ahead. yeah, go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say to that point at an abstract level, you might say that that's what Agamemnon and Achilles are both experiencing right now. Right. <laughs> into a tight spot because he's lived according to an honor code, which suggests he's the best human that exists. Nobody can mess with that. Agamemnon comes in and takes his concubine, Boom, that shatters Achilles' world image of himself because he's only ever been treated by his mother and everybody in existence as the greatest thing around. He thinks he's a god, essentially. He's never lost a fight. He looks like a god. Everybody bows to him. And then Agamemnon, whom he considers lesser than he is, takes something from him. And the wisest Achaean, Nestor, then supports this choice and says explicitly, point blank, that... Agamemnon is better than he is, and even worse, Athena restrains him from killing Agamemnon, suggesting what? That deep down, he understands that too. Boom, he's in a very tight spot, but Agamemnon's also about to be in a tight spot because he just got rid of his best warrior and he's going to start to lose. (laughs) Who is everybody going to blame for the obvious... uh, Who is everybody going to blame for the fact that they've started to lose right after Achilles leaves? (laughs) He's his... His butt's on the line is what you should is what you should know about that. So so even though the Trojans are literally in a tight spot in terms of or rather, uh, it is still figuratively. Sorry, <laughs> even though they're in a tight spot in a physical way in terms of being surrounded by their walls and having Achaeans on the outside of them, um, the Achaeans find the leaders of the Achaeans also find themselves in mental tight spots. Or you might say that they're all. The Iliad is a story of going from known territory, which happens to be war, to unknown territory within that war, which sounds like just such a horrifying thing, which is probably why Heart of Darkness is so horrifying, too. It's like you're already in a space that is horrifying, objectively speaking, and then you enter into confusion within that space where violence and death is daily present. That's horror. The uh, Yeah, that's... Well, that's the psychological, right? Like, as long as you don't have any self-consciousness, you're fine. You know, sure. You're golden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're just function. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, you're just... But see, I think that's the thing that... This is the Western tradition of showing our coming to consciousness and self-consciousness as opposed to the Near Eastern. Because uh, why are the gods present alongside the men? Because they're no longer integrated. They've left the garden as it were, in this major conflict. And 
what do the men now experience because they understand there are gods? Well, utter self-consciousness. Well, why would they feel that? Well, what's a God? The most powerful, incredible thing that exists? Hmm. Yes. And does it always work with them, uh, with their conscious aims? No, because what are the gods in the Iliad? They're often mo uh, ex explosive motivational forces like lust, Aphrodite, or say anger and its desire for conflict, Ares. Uh, well, then there's Athena who wants victory. What is she? She's competency brought about by uh, pragmatic reasoning. Yeah. Um, and what is Zeus? The principle of order, which Athena always seeks to stabilize and Ares anger and also Aphrodite, with whom he cheats in the Odyssey, always seek to destabilize, emphasize both by Paris and the actions of Achilleus. And so yeah, yeah. they are experiencing the eternal drama of a human after it becomes conscious and self-conscious and realizes that its conscious aims may get contradicted by its much more powerful primordial uh, emotional forces. Now, that's, uh, now so there, there's something really interesting going on then in that moment you point out about Athena restraining uh, Achilles with you know holding his hair holding him by the hair or whatever right because there you have something that's like like you're pointing out you know it's it is a drive you know this this ideal of of consciousness of competence uh in accord with order and and a healthy order you know so, so to speak right. and then, a healthy order yeah it has to keep order healthy too in fact if Athena's not there it'll decay and die and i i think what that shows there is that with the birth of um intellect or consciousness comes the birth of will and thus self-restraint yeah yeah okay so that's that's really Which is really an argument i'll make during the odyssey that because odysseus is intelligent he knows self-restraint and that's that's what's represented by him literally being restrained as he goes by the sirens, which sing the song of all men's desire. Um, that that he can actually restrain himself. Yeah. Um, and that is actually, I would say, supported by Dante, too, who in his lowest sphere of heaven, the moon, is those are the people who are the oath breakers. They were inconsistent. What is inconsistency a sin of? The will, not continuing forward. It needs to be balanced or absolute like that of God's. At the top, they're the contemplatives. What do they do? They think really well. Remember, I made the claim about dualities actually being unities, and we can question this. Well, but I think that those are the two poles in his heaven because those are the two twins born together, uh, which I think is a representation in mythology fairly common, the two twins being born. Well, the twins of consciousness are will and intellect. Yeah. And, that, and that's why I think it's so evil that we betray each other because for one, we're the only creature that betrays each other. And because we use the thing that grew out of the fact that we trust each other, the intellect in order to betray each other. Well, that's just, and not just each, so each other, but also ourselves, right? It's, it's our, but especially ourselves. That's right. Uh, especially ourselves. That's what's so interesting to me about, well, the, the psychology of Dante, I guess, is that in some way, you know, he can sympathize with everyone at every level. Um, and so he, he has an incredibly powerful intellect, clearly, to, to harmonize and integrate all of these stories and, right. and traditions. But at the same time, he has an incredibly powerful will, you know, to continue moving. Yes. Even though he wants yes. to stay and talk with each and every person that he goes past, you know. Well, he says that, well, he has the most powerful possible motivation because in becoming an exile, um, you know, he has his great grandfather, um, Kachaguida. Kachaguida gives a discourse in, in the Paradiso on how the only virtue one can have is civic virtue. 
And so that presents a problem for someone like a Dante in the tradition of say a Moses as an exile, because as an exile, can you have a virtue related to the city? And the answer is yes. And actually the most important uh, role, which is that of the prophet, the one who stands alone as individual and sees and thus reflects what the city is. And thus the city hates the prophet because the prophet reflects what the city is, which is sort of based on the old, um, there used to be a ritual that the Athenians would take on. And I learned this from Carl Carini, where they, uh, before they were quite civilized, they would take the ugliest man and woman of a city out into the woods and they would yell insults at them. Is They would yell the worst things they could possibly think up at them and then they would kill them. And then later on, when they became a little more civilized, they just insulted them as they walked through the streets. And I see that essentially as sort of what a prophet is. They take everything of what a society is, and you can say the Inferno represents this very well, and then they just throw it back in the society's face and they say, boom, this is what you are. And why you hate it is because I'm not adding my own opinion. I'm just showing you the truth. Revealing. I'm revealing it. That's, it's revelation. That's right. And in so doing, they can burn away corruption. And well, so Dante says that he had to essentially sacrifice all ambitions. He had his family, his life, and his city. It was the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. But what it did was it freed up all the energy he had for his life because the entire structure of it disappeared. And it enabled him to throw it all into creating this reflection of his time, which has become a jewel of eternal shining light, uh, the, which is the divine comedy. The divine, right? That's, that's not the name he gave it. That's the name everyone else gave it when they read it, right? That's right. That's right. Like, like the expression, you're a master when everybody calls you a master. And it's like, yeah, it was, I, I, it was either Petrarch or Boccaccio. I think it was Boccaccio who first called it the Divino Commedia, but yeah, it was just a comedy for him. And, but, you know, also indicating his intelligence because a comedy naturally leads towards the divine, which everybody would have understood at that time, which if, if that didn't just jump into one of our heads, then, well, we need to keep learning some. Uh, <laughs> well, that's one thing. Okay. So I think there's um, a couple things that you, you made me think of just now. One I wanted to throw out was, the image of Thersites, you know, as, as, as that um, a, a manifestation maybe of the same kind of thing that the Athenians used to do with their with their insulting the uh, the oh, lowest. Interesting. And so, and then thinking about Dante's reading of Odysseus and where oh, he puts yes. him in, in, in pretty down, pretty low down in 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 the Inferno, um, but that you know he's he's clearly. Um, uh, not uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's never actually read the Odyssey, right? It's not something he had access to. That's, that's right. He probably read Lomond de Trois. Uh, he he knows stories about the Odyssey, yeah. in the Iliad, but he could not himself read Greek, okay. and um, they were not yet translated back from the Arabic tradition okay. um, at that time, from my understanding. Now, so that's something. I mean, that's in a way a limitation then. And well, I don't know exactly how much to make of that, but I think it's interesting that. A great limitation of the Greeks as well um, is their uh, their calling uh, other people's barbarians, right? Yeah. So, um, well, just three things. What I think Thersites represents in the Iliad at that point is what I think Eurylochus in the Odyssey represents, which is sort of a Luciferian figure who's capable of intelligent speech, but uses it in order to disorder rather than to order people and therefore to weaken them. That reminds me. About who's your He's not the one who falls off the roof, is he? That, that's that's Elpinor. Eurylochus Elpinor, is a sorry. 
he's the brother-in-law of Odysseus, so married to Odysseus's sister, whom we'd never get the name of, who speaks against Odysseus multiple times and, in fact, loses Odysseus's men when they're split into two when he takes them up to Circe. He's also the one that suggests that the men land on Threnakia using a, a, a sickly sweet saccharine argument saying, oh, hard man, Odysseus, you're much stronger than we are. We can't endure what you can endure. And even when Odysseus argues that uh, or says, listen, an immortal goddess Circe and Tiresias, who can only tell the truth from the underworld, told me, do not eat this cattle. Eurylochus will still, when Odysseus goes to sleep, go and have all the men eat the cattle, which is, you know, actually very similar, I would say, to uh, the eating of the, the apple story um, and, and Adam and Eve. But he ends up getting everybody killed because he says some very reasonable things, which do not happen to be true. So he leads people astray. And um, so my students are actually thinking right now about the issue of, well, who's more to blame, the people who get led astray or the person who leads astray? And that was actually a very, very big question in medieval Arabic philosophy, because there were philosophers coming about who could say some very powerful things. And well, there were also some theologians who could say some powerful but wrong things and then lead faithful individuals astray. And well, what I always tell the students is, well, it's your own job to acquire your own intellect, especially in the democracy, in order to make your own decisions for yourself. And so, well, I think they're all sort of to blame. And I think that's what Peterson says, too, when he talks about places like the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and North Korea. It's a, it's a conspiracy between them all to share in their own weakness, you might say, and their own lack. Right. The, the kind of corruption that, that seeps in. And it's not just a voice outside you anymore convincing you, but it's a voice that you've <clears throat> internalized. It's, it's got you by the, by the, exactly. the belt, you know. That's right. I was, I was reading Peterson last night. And he was talking about how you should be very wary to try and save people because perhaps you're not so great yourself and you're avoiding something you need to do. And perhaps they don't want to be saved. And perhaps what you do when you speak to them is just Oh, assure them that they're doing everything they possibly can, that they're trying so hard and that you've helped them to do that so much, whereas you've actually accomplished nothing but just rooted each other in your mutual shared delusion, which doesn't help move either of you forward at all. Um, yeah. Which is yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so the, the delusion, so the part of getting out of a shared delusion, I think, is, is hearing is hearing distinct voices, right? And so yes. that's why I think, well, part of part of what interests me about um, the the Greeks versus the Trojans, you point out a number of times that the Greeks are more unified. They they uh, speak the same language, right? Yes. And the Trojans are a kind of uh, motley, you know, group of nations, and yeah, they're and, like a diaspora. Uh, yeah, but also kind of like a like a democracy in a way, right? It's like it's like a, a diverse, you know, a big tent, you know, lots of different uh, origins and, and all that good stuff. So, so I guess I'm curious, like over time, um, it seems like we have shifted more towards a Trojan kind of mentality, um, even to the point of kind of uh, fencing ourselves in, you know, or at least a lot of people want to, want to call, call on people to do that. Right. It's like, we, sure. on the one hand, we celebrate diversity. We, we don't like to uh, call other people barbarians or other mean names, you know, just because they don't speak our language or whatever. But, but on the other hand, we're sort of like, okay, but then we, we're not unified. We don't have a, a central guiding narrative or like a purpose, you know. And and so, so it seems like there's, 
there is some kind of um uh well it's one of the oldest philosophical questions right like whether two things are actually two things or or if it's one right the many and the one right right, right. you know just to support the the complexity of your question and not necessarily to answer it the romans would certainly agree with your analysis of the trojans as being the ultimate victors because of course the trojans through the work of the aeneid written by the roman virgil well the romans will root their tradition in the trojans and the romans destroy the greeks and the Romans were a democracy when they did that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would agree to that. However, the very Aeneid that I'm talking about being written was, was written for the new emperor then, Augustine. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that's very tricky because he is himself a king of a walled city. However, part of the Pax Romana, which you know was I think 178 years of peace, was his willingness to allow for learning, though he did, of course, exile Ovid when he wrote an epic against, uh, not against, but in contrast to, you might say, the, uh, the Aeneid, the Metamorphoses. There's some, there's some idea that actually what uh, Augustine did is sort of what Vladimir Putin is doing right now, where he sort of started to censor the art and make sure that it, it expressed more of a national unity um, and, 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 well, this is sort of interesting that the difference between a propagandistic attempt at unity and a real call to unity, that's, I don't know what I could do with that yet. But I did, I wanted to go back to your, your question about how Dante sees Odysseus, because he does see Odysseus down in Canto 26 of the Inferno, which is where um, the, uh, the liars are down amongst the fraudulent. Um, the the deceitful counselors in particular. And he shares a dual tipped flame with uh, with Diomedes. And in fact, that's surprising. Dante to me. Dante is not yet capable of speaking to him because he doesn't know his language. So oh, Virgil will yeah. interpret him for him, indicating that Dante doesn't yet have mastery and perhaps cannot even handle the speech of Odysseus without himself being deceived or drawn in. And and so Odysseus gets the longest speech of anybody in hell. Huh. And also, Canto 26 is the Canto of Poets, because Canto 26 is also where Dante in the Purgatorio meets the Provencal poet whom he represents in his own native language, suggesting that he can now see somebody for what he actually is. Hmm. And then in Canto 26 of the Paradiso, he'll talk to the first poet, thus showing us boom where these this is the canto of poets of makers with words of explorers yeah. uh it's adam that he talks to and adam is the first poet because he makes the first words because he calls things by the word so he calls things by the true language yeah, so, yeah. Boom, odysseus is just a more you might say primitive or naive version of that thing which creates truth by speech because he falsifies truth by speech, but he's the he's the level before you might say um, he's the proto level. And in fact, even in Paradise, um, Dante will look down and see Odysseus's journey across the earth as a scar upon the earth, just as Odysseus himself has a scar upon his knee. Oh yeah, Again, suggesting that in so doing great things, even if you make a great flaw you leave yourself inscribed upon the earth 
for all time, suggesting that we should be grateful for the, even the flaws of those in the past because they taught us something, even if they were in great error, which I think is his entire perception of the pagan Greco-Roman tradition, that even if it's not purely uh, Christian to those at his time, that it has extraordinary value because it is human. And because it's human, it has a much broader understanding uh, appeal to that, which is Christian, he might say, because he actually believes in Catholicism as universal, meaning anything that is human applies to it right. uh, and can be agglomerated to it or glommed onto it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. I forgot that about about the uh, the interaction uh, being in in a language that Dante doesn't know, and that's sort of you know literally and metaphorically true. Yeah, that's yes, very yes. very interesting. Um, yes. but that, that he, by the end, but by the end that he can speak to Adam, yeah, that he somehow has has gotten in touch with the true, you know, the original uh, human language, and uh, and but that's also okay. So we can go back to one other thing I've been meaning to ask about for a long time was the uh, you mentioned somewhere in one of the lectures that the uh, the golden apples of the Hesperides are connected with the with the start of the Trojan War, and I, I I'd like to hear a little more about the. Um, what you know about the the story of the of the Garden of the Hesperides, and in what way it might uh, you know relate to uh, you know shadow whatever the the Garden of Eden story. Like, are those the same story? What what's going on there? Well, I know these story. I know these stories well. Um, <laughs> and I uh, there are, there are a couple main stories when it comes to the Hesperides. There's a story of getting the golden apples in order to defeat Atalanta in the race. There's the story of Heracles having to get the golden apples as one of his 12 great labors. But then the story that perhaps I, I could share with you and therefore with the listeners, which maybe you've all been wanting to hear, is how the Trojan War came to start. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the idea was this, and say this is in the background. Nothing happens without Zeus seeing it first. He, and it's unclear in the Iliad and in ancient mythology exactly what Zeus's relationship to fate is. But what, what does seem to be clear is that he does not control fate. He simply sees it and is its steward. Hmm. So even though he's all par powerful compared to the other gods, which he'll explicitly say in the Iliad, suggesting that he could drop a golden rope and then pull them and the earth and the sky up with it, fate is something that he can only steward to, and that's his responsibility. And so the idea might be that and this is shared in ancient texts that Zeus wanted a calling in the world. And so he allowed for war to happen, suggesting that order allows for chaos at time to renew a stronger order. Um, but so there's this goddess named Eris. And she's the goddess of discord. And she's the twin. Uh, she's called Inyalios or Inyo in the Iliad. And she's the twin of Ares. Mm. And so there was a marriage, a very famous marriage in the ancient world between Peleus and Thetis. And Peleus was the father of Achilleus and was a great hero and one of the Argonauts. And his brother Telamon is the father of Aias the Greater. And they're themselves great men. And so Peleus was given the great privilege to marry Thetis, a sea nymph, a Nereid, because as beautiful as Thetis was, she was once coveted by both Zeus and Poseidon. However, there was a prophecy about her that she would bear a son greater than her father. And so that would not do with Poseidon and Zeus because, well, 
<laughs> they've already seen what happens to fathers who get beaten by sons and it's happened over and over again in heaven Uranus is defeated by Kronos his son Kronos is defeated by his son uh, Zeus which you might take to mean since Kronos eats his son he's the ever devouring father of nature why does Zeus defeat him because he's the eternal order that you can apply even to nature which stays which remains eternal regardless of the deaths of individuals you might say um, yeah, it's like the dark version of, of chaos coming through, though, too, right? It's like, it's a, it's an image that you see uh, in some of Goya's last paintings. He does, he does a, a Saturn devouring his children or something like that. Oh, it's so, oh, it's so sickening. I've seen it. It's because he's so monstrous, and and the the body is so human. And so, just back to your distinction between the barbaric and the civilized, it also shows a going back in time in terms of the barbaric nature within eating what's civilized which you might say is what happens when you go to war yeah. as well and that's actually literally true of, true of war too right because you send your youngest men to die mm -hmm. when you do that which is actually devouring the future for the present um, flower, the flower of the people yeah yeah and you know in fact homer will make those sorts of analogies constantly comparing men you know in the first bloom of their youth who were loved by their mothers for like say the fluffiness of their hair, which was so like a sheep in their mother's mind, uh, and like, say, getting cut down just as like, say, a beautiful flower, like a poppy gets cut down uh, by the by a heavy thunderstorm. And just, you know, like that imagery of a flower on like, say, the ground still getting kind of moved by the hits that hit it or by the rain that hits it, pelted at, even after it's felled, sort of like a body being run over by individuals after and it's he's not i wouldn't say that homer is pro or anti-war he's descriptive of war right he sees so, as he's not controlling fate he's just seeing it you know so right, exactly he's representing it and that's i think why we keep it and i think that's what sort of differentiates a great book from a normal sort of book and because you know something that the straussians do which i always found was sort of funny is they try and ascribe intent to everything which is interesting because from an evolutionary and biological perspective we now know through the work of Jordan B. Peterson that humans naturally ascribe intent. That's why when you stub your toe on a table, you hit the table because <laughs> it meant to do that to you. And so they're sort of like, what's your angle? What's your angle? And that's what a lot of, that's what most people start. Well, what's the angle of the prophet who writes a great book just to show what it is. They don't have an angle. They have a lens. Um, so they don't give you a slant. They give you light. Um, and that's really hard for people to deal with because they always say, well, why could, why, why are you, who are you to do that? And, you know, what is actually lying beneath? And it's like, oh, well, maybe something's lying above. They have a superordinate goal and the goal is to do the best thing they can. And the best thing they can is to represent the truth of their current situation because that'll help people in their situations. And maybe that's why we still read Homer, even though it's a bunch of people throwing spears at each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly speaking, I, they seem very different, but, uh, you know, once you get down into it, Actually, they're very much exactly the same. I mean, we figured out that we're pretty much the exact same as rats. Uh, even more so, are we like people from 3,000 years ago than rats? Um, also the, um, I mean, it's a high threshold to get into these books, though, right? Like, you have to yes. pass some pretty barbaric, well, you know, uncivilized, whatever you want to call it, like stuff, like the, uh, you know, the whole um, Perseus, Perseus stuff at the very uh, start. Yeah, but I think it's also I think it's also important to see 
I think it's really important to see how things have actually developed in order to understand the current conversation for what it actually is. And, um, you know, sort of those issues of having concubines, again, when you see it within the the context, uh, they didn't have so much extra food. They didn't have so much, they didn't have enough to support people who couldn't do that much. And what is it that a woman could do at that time in a barbaric age where you need to be able to fight and defend yourself and women in large part were not as strong as men. Uh, well, you had to be able to cook. You had to be able to uh, uh, knit um, because you made the clothes. You had to be able to have kids and lay with, lay with the, you know, the men who were fighters. Um, so concubine, <clears throat> you might say that it's, you get married or you're a slave slash concubine or you're dead. Or you're a goddess, though, right? There's yeah, this yeah, other, yeah, yeah. other that's the, See, yeah. that's, the, that's the problem. Even, I've been even to a couple conferences, um, and particularly even with some Pacifica graduates, and that was something they were totally unable to consider, which, which just bothered me because it, it showed how limited their idea of the Greek conception of the feminine was because obviously the greatest, there are great goddesses amongst the Greek tradition and Hera and Athena are going to be on the side in the Trojan war that wins, which means their will is supreme. Um, And in fact, Zeus's will is represented by his daughter, Athena, who's stronger even than the shooter of light arrows towards goals, who is always successful Apollo. I mean, she's even successful over her brother Apollo in this war. It's incredible because, and something else you might think is, why is not Apollo the number two? Why is he not the Athena? It's like, well, look, obviously the Greeks understood the importance of women um, and the feminine as well. And um, I mean, just to get back to the original story, this, this, I mean, this war, which started by discord, which was, is a woman started because of the feelings of a man for a woman, Helen, who has to feel for the rest of her life as if, well, she understands that the highest aims are feminine in some respect, or at least part of it. Well, but before I make that point, let me finish the story very quickly, just because maybe it'll give us some imaginative credence. And so Peleus marries Thetis, and the gods allow this because they generally don't like it when human men marry divine women. But at the wedding, they invited all gods except for Discord, Eris. Oh, for obvious reasons. It's a fairy tale. Yeah, it's the, yes, yes. the Sleeping Beauty. Yes, yes. And, um, and when you don't – and, you know, bad things always happen at weddings in Greek mythology. Uh, an apple's going to get thrown in here. Uh, let's see. Uh, if you ever read uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, Theseus goes to a wedding with the Lapis and the Centaurs. That well, the Centaurs try and take all the women, and that's a, that's a pretty bad one. You go to Orpheus and Eurydice's wedding, and a snake actually will a, a snake. There you go in a garden with a wedding between two people will actually bite and kill Eurydice. And so you see again and again, and again even on Achilles' shield in the Iliad, you see a city at war and a city having a wedding. You see that discord invites itself in regardless of whether you want it to or not, which I would say is also what the symbol of the yin yang means that in the yin side, the little bit of yang is, you know, of course the snake, the chaos that can always come. Right. And so I would say that discord here represents the same idea as the snake, which is in all safe or well-ordered spaces, the potential for chaos exists 
regardless of what you hope for. And that the story of Buddha growing up and trying to be kept from chaos by his father is the same. And the same with Princess Jasmine in Aladdin being kept <laughs> behind the walls as well. Um, I like that description of it, yeah. But I think that that's also a good way of explaining sort of the difference between wanting walls and wanting open borders. And uh, that Peterson and his five big five factor analysis does a good job about this because he says that political orientation tends to be uh, tied to temperament, which is an intuition that I've always had, but didn't have the research to back up, but now do. And um, he suggests that those high in trade openness, which means creativity, uh, openness to experience, openness to experience and subdivides into that and uh, intelligence. If they happen to be low in conscientiousness, which means industriousness and orderliness, they become political liberals. And that as somebody uh, gets older, that actually becomes more telling, not less. And which you should imagine since your intellect crystallizes and becomes less fluid, of course, your opinions and your, your temper. If your intellect becomes more crystallized, that means it does less to change what you already think, which means that what you have already thought as a young person will simply become more rooted as you get older. And so on the other end of things, political conservatives often are people high in trait, uh, conscientiousness, which means they're orderly, which means they're disgust sensitive, which means they like things to be clean and neat and organized, like having appropriate borders between things and following the law and uh, meaning what you say and being sincere and things like that. And also being very hard working. It's very much an American ideal. I would say Um, sort of, I might say that it is the ideal from which the concept of Protestant work ethic surely came. Yeah. Cause um, the sacred is bound up in that too. Uh, it's, it's a collective ideal of something sacred versus kind of an individual uh, inner light or something. You know, and, yes. Yes. And the, and the idea is always how much, how much new anomalous information do we let in? How do we keep one foot sort of in chaos and one foot in order so that we're continuing to get new and uh, redeeming or, re- uh, or uh, reinvigorating information so that we continue to understand the uh, changing environment underneath us, not only in terms of how other people are interacting with us, because our social environment is our national environment, but also how is our actual natural environment too? Because of course that changes and sends some obstacles like hurricanes, fires, uh, you know, poor inclement weather, things like that. Um, totally. And so we always need to determine the balance between um, how much new info do we let in? Because if there's too much new information, well, that's like a flood and that, that terrifies and traumatizes uh, people. Like if we were to all of a sudden uh, realize that there was some pandemic somewhere, that would terrify us and we would implement some sort of po- conservative policy immediately limiting border movement or something like that. Whereas if we discover something very interesting in a new culture, or like a new food and, it's, and it sweeps through us, it, it's like a fad, right? Yeah. When something sweeps the nation, that's, that's when we've allowed something creative and new into our sort of collective consciousness, right. you might say. But, um, but so how I understand Homer and the Greek conception of barbaric is, well, you might even say that Homer's idea of the barbaric shifts because during the course of the Odyssey, and I'll make this claim throughout the entire course, he seems to observe, observe that humans had to go from a position of uh, simply being motivated to eat food to simply perceiving outsiders as threats to simply perceiving outsiders as threats, which potentially they can eat for value 
that to seeing outsiders potentially as sources of information actually and realizing that rather than filling themselves with their physical mass they can fill themselves with their spiritual or informative mass which is what i think actually the mass represents um they learned that people actually have the most valuable thing possible when they're strangers which is to bring you new information which then makes you stronger so that and that's why in the odyssey they uh the zinnia the hospitality is honored so highly because if people are civilized and honor the zinnia that means that they will trade information with you which is the highest possible trade which is even more valuable than sacking a people and far more valuable than the primitive version of uh eating the people which the cyclopes and the lystragones will do so well so is that the golden apple then like the apple that you don't actually consume or that you you know that's how does that enter into the story i guess is um well, well, I mean, so I, I haven't finished the the original story, but I might say just the golden apple as a symbol. How how would you understand that? The apple is that which shines out at you, which actually creates um, color perception. So so we've learned in the ecological approach to visual perception, and so that's cool, that's amazing. Why is it golden? Well, golden indicates the highest value, that which is divine. Well, what is that thing which you seek, which gives you vision, which is divine? That would be truth uh information that would be something and something that and why is it on an eternal tree which has golden fruit because each human can eat from that tree and in so eating you embody the truth and can share it with others and so the tree really ought to be the best image would be it with it like say growing out of a person's mouth with uh golden apples on it with a younger human perhaps pulling one of those apples and that would be the ideal image of the teacher i would say or the eternal teacher hmm. um, but guarded but by a, a dragon though still right guarded like, by a dragon because of yeah. course receiving new information involves threats so you can experience both hope and uh anxiety because of uh the 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 presence of new information or anomalous information because on the one hand it's scary and it might break apart your concepts and it might be harmful uh on the one hand on the other hand however it might uh be very useful and helpful and change your life in a positive way um and so yes dragons always guard gold because gold is that which is most valuable to us and in fact gold simply represents that which is actually gold to us in terms of conception which means valuable which means information um but the dragon is that which you have to risk whenever you go out and you know uh, some of our even cliches, uh, what is it? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm-hmm. Seems to be actually 100% true. And I think that also makes the game fun because <laughs> I mean, if you could just acquire new information without experiencing anxiety and threat, it's like life would be like a cheat mode. It's like we've tried that in video games. It's just not fun. It's, no long, it's like in, it's, that, it's one of the worst parts of the Matrix, I feel like, where they plug him in and he's like, I know Kung Fu. I mean, everyone just laughs at that. So. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just, I remember thinking those sorts of thoughts even as a young person. It's funny, my nascent conceptions of heaven, but I remember thinking, okay, if I could have a genie, would my life get better? Even if it wasn't trying to actually trick me. But like, say, if I say could just wish, oh, I want to be in shape. I was like, would that completely devalue going to the gym every day, which I do, and gives me some sense of pride for accomplishment and discipline. That's right. 
That's right. And if I could just wish my dreams into reality, like I had a super castle and all the girls I ever had a crush on were there hanging out, ready to talk to me and they loved me. It's like, I just remember feeling that that was kind of like saccharine, sickly sweet. That it just, it's like, ah, uh, without the endeavor, what is human life? And I think that's what Dante's Purgatorio and what the Odyssey and what the Iliad shows. It's not even necessarily the pursuit itself, but the fact that you are pursuing something which makes life valuable. And well, the Iliad is a very dangerous environment. It's a war. The Odyssey is a super dangerous environment. I mean, for God's sake, Odysseus has to go by skill in Charybdis. And, right. he's, and after, after he loses his ship on Thrinikia, and this is just a small detail, which I, I don't know if anybody ever noticed this, he's out on the sea on a plank of wood for 10 days. Yeah. I mean, just think about that. 10 days. That's hard. Why is it 10 days? Because he's already endured starving on Thrinikia. His men ate the cattle got killed, destroyed his ship. And then he still not having eaten those cattle survives 10 days on the water. It's showing the difference between somebody with intelligence and thus self-restraint and somebody who doesn't the incredible things he can do just that don't even get mentioned. They can just slip by the reader's attention. It's right. like, man, that's the difference between you optimized and you just giving in. And it's like, gosh, that's a world of difference. That's an absolute world of difference, um, which is why I love to teach these texts because it's like, look at what you can do because this is the distilled experience of a people. It's like, if you endeavor, it is dangerous, but it is the best and most accomplished version of life because you're always seeking to accomplish and distinguish yourself. And the greatest distinction is to accomplish more than those around you. Uh, or to, or at least to accomplish as much as you can. Though yeah. Odysseus, Odysseus does shine forth above all others precisely because he embodies the things which make a person successful. Intelligence, yeah. self-restraint, keeping his goal completely focused uh, and not losing his head in any situation, which is why he can't be turned into an animal and why the gods help him. And how, why he can disguise himself even in speech and also reveal himself because wisdom can choose to reveal itself. Now, so he, not to. part of, well, so part of what's interesting to me about Odysseus is like, if you take him as a model of, um, of education, say, right? Like yes. what, what would that education look like then? Because he doesn't have, I mean, he doesn't have a teacher per se. He, he learns through his experience, right? He seeks out yes. experience. You might say Athena is his teacher, wisdom itself. The situation, he derives the appropriate meaning from each situation by acting appropriately within a situation in order to get the best possible outcome in accordance with his overarching goals. <clears throat> and that's the best you can ever do, right? Yeah. You enter the particular situation. You're like at a party with some friends. But your super overarching goal is to get home eventually. So yeah. you're going to behave appropriately not only for the then, but also for the future. And so right. that's the difference between him and, say, his men. His men go to Circe's. They get turned into pigs. What does that mean? Poof. Food, the presence of beautiful woman and food, consumatory reward system. They completely give up the idea of the future for the present. Ah. She couldn't possibly be tricking them. It's the parents in so, Spirited Away, so, too. Do you remember that? The, yes, I do. I, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I think that about point. that. And they also negotiate too late, right? 
that's yeah. another similarity between Spirited Away and uh, the Odyssey. And Threnakia, Eurylochus, and the men, they say, we can sacrifice after we eat. <laughs> that's, again, that's again the same idea, right? Of like saying, throwing heaven into the future and say, and uh, saying that you're going to, um, and uh, sacrificing the future for the present, right? I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. It's the opposite of the right idea. You can't sacri- You can't negotiate with the gods in that way. Your negotiation with the gods is you giving your, is sacrificing your present for your future. And so that's the difference between, say, Odysseus and Eurylochus and the men, that he, he keeps in mind in the present circumstance where he is going. And so when he gets to Circe's house, he's not overwhelmed by sexual desire for her. He's not overwhelmed by the food and the drink that she shows in front because he understands he needs to keep his head in this situation in order to achieve his ultimate situation to get to where he ultimately is. And so the idea is if you keep your goal in mind, it is easier to restrain yourself when your emotions and your desires flare up as they certainly will in many situations throughout life, which is what I think Ulysses illustrates uh, James Joyce's work and how it actually connects to the Odyssey because the idea is, well, how do you confront the natural forces and the social forces, which are also natural forces well, of like life the, on the day to day? It's the banality of life, right? It's like the yes. lack of heroic potential <laughs> that you have to find beauty some, somewhere. And it's actually there if you look, you know, it's, it is. Well, but- the thing is that life, we've simplified it so much by living in cities and now being so, surrounded by all, all our tools, which are further simplifications of reality. So we think things are banal. But we're still living out the same narrative structure that we've always done. We're still walking the path of the hero, but we've forgotten that because we don't look, and this is so stupid of us, because we don't look just like a hero, because we don't have like a lion skin on our head. If we haven't hit a lion, we think we're not heroic, which is incredible, which on the one hand is true. It's good recognition. If you haven't killed a lion, you're not a lion killer. However, there might be an abstraction on that because – for example, maybe you wrestled somebody in a cage like I did once and defeated them. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's sort of, maybe that's how we wrestle lions. Now we wrestle our own inner demons, and then that enables us to wrestle against other humans. Well, and you see this too. So, yeah. like you, you pointed out, right? Like there's a there's a generation of heroes before Odysseus and Achilles. Yes. And they are the greater heroes and so got, far as these heroes know. You've got, you've got Odysseus going down to the underworld to, to, um, to sacrifice and to gain some intelligence from yes. right, the great seer past who's dead. And that's, yes, yes. that's – I think that's a part of it too, right? It's not just like – we don't live in only um, a flat you know, moment. We live in the depth of all the time that's gone before and all the time that's yes. to come. So we're nested. You We're know, completely nested. We are access to them. You've you've got to make the sacrifice, and and that's yes, yeah. And you know that's 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 funny. I'm reading Marcia Eliade right now, and uh, his work on shamanism, and that's exactly what he says is the initi- initiation ritual for a shaman, which is to go down into the underworld and talk to the spirits of the dead. What does that mean? That means getting getting in contact with the tradition and the tradition of the people, and then so understanding the tradition of the people, you understand the people for what they have been and thus what they are. And therefore you see what's actually different about them now and what has always been the same. What's interesting about a shamanic ritual is that they say you go through a sickness and a fallow period, and then uh, all of a sudden you can see, and it's just interesting 
thinking of abstractions, because obviously if there were shamans at earlier cultures, there are still shamans. However, they have taken on a more abstract role. And something interesting about our own profession as teachers is that what is it exactly you do when you teach? Are you restoring reality? Are you restoring tradition and helping people to be healthier and stronger? Are you, are you like, are you yourself transforming yourself through an encountering the past in order to transform the present by informing people of what has always been. Is that what a shaman does? And is that why a shaman is so bizarre? Is that why a shaman is often represented by somebody with an extremely colorful face, like Rafiki in the, uh, in the, in the Lion King. And it's like, what does it mean that his face is so colorful? You're like, well, he's that sort of monkey. It's like, well, also it means he's creative. Yeah. Yeah. And the most interesting creative thing you can make something which represents both the past and the present i think because then it represents far more of the whole as it actually is i think it's far more true um yeah. so every time we try and represent an old motif say goya is representing saturn eating his child it's the tradition as it's always been renewed in that unique moment yeah so it's both new and old all at once which is something i think Dante would agree with and why stories continue to be meaningful to us because it's like why is it that when you tell somebody a story and you tell every child the story all of them like it all of them remember it uh, and why it, because there must be something about both the story and the human that uh, connect together that the, the story speaks to something fundamental or universal in the human and the human must see something fundamental and universal in the story, and that's why it remembers it. Well, it's like it's like there is something about the story that's that's true, right? Like that's what yes, there must be because that's why that's what we must recognize in it, and why we remember it because we remember the things that seem important, right? Like we forget everything else, we forget almost everything. <laughs> it's a good thing that we can, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> Good point. Well, especially for old Odysseus and Dante. Well, you know, actually, that's sort of interesting that, you know, it's a good thing we can, but, you know, just mentioning trauma a little bit earlier, it's, you know, Odysseus sees all of his men die around him, and he had 12 ships when he first started, and he shows up back at Ithaca with none and no men, and on, so that's uh, a men. He comes back asleep on the magic ship, right? Like Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> I just lectured on that with the students. Cool. We're trying to understand exactly what that means because the magic ships, they move as fast as thought and they carry him in the hold alongside the treasure. And so he's just told them his story, which means he shared his treasure with them. And so they're going to convey him on their, their ships back to Ithaca as fast as possible. And so the thought I shared with the students is that perhaps this indicates just how fast the most valuable thing can be transmitted between people which is as fast as thought, which is essentially as fast as you can speak, because that's as fast as you can possibly share information with one people to another. And then, well, he's left on Ithaca and he's enriched. He now has more gold than he even got at Troy um, because of his experiences, right? Because he's actually gone through tons of experiences getting back home. Yeah. And well, the Phaeacians, they're forever rendered <laughs> dumb afterwards. Oddly, their ship gets turned to stone and uh, a mountain gets placed on top of them, potentially. Those Zeus counsels 
against that uh, to them. And right. The only access I we have to them now is through the story, you know, sort of interesting. Right. Right. And you, you might say that that all of that indicates that each one of these obstacles was potentially unique to Odysseus. Hmm. Um, and, and that uh, maybe unique and universal, but the particular message that he gives seems to be, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's a lot to, there's a lot there. Yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let me just finish very quickly that story. So Eris throws this apple of discord into this wedding. She's not invited to, which is what she does. And these three gods and on the apple, it says Khaleesi, which means to the fairest, which means to the most beautiful. And so, well, that's an issue. These goddesses, they're very vain. And well, you might say they're fundamental rep, uh, motivational forces. And so what's one of them? Mother nature, Hera. Mm-hmm. What's another? Venus, lust, uh, uh, Aphrodite. And then the other, Athena, desire for victory. And in fact, they Zeus is told to choose between them. And he says, no way. <laughs> very wise of him. Very wise of him. And, you know, it would have been a lose-lose-lose for him because Aphrodite's his daughter, Athena is his daughter, and Hera is his wife and sister. Uh, so everybody will be mad at him if he chooses. So he chooses a foolish young shepherd, a poor shepherd. And it's so important that he's a shepherd because where does he lead his people? To doom and demise. And his name is Paris. And so Paris says, at first, he tries to be smart, actually. He says, can I split the apple into three? Answer, no. <laughs> And so each one of the goddesses, knowing that the others will cheat, this is so Greek. They're such a playful people. They all offer, they all offer bribes to Paris. So Hera offers political power, which you might understand to mean he could be king someday. However, you might also see behind all these offerings potential negative consequences, because if he's going to be king someday, who's got to die? That would be his father and his brother Hector and many of his other brothers. So there could be potentially horrifying consequences. Uh, Athena offers victory in battle. But what's horrifying about that? Well, maybe he'll never stop battling. Um, and he also doesn't care much about that because he's not much of a fighter. And then, so what does Aphrodite offer? The most beautiful woman in the world. Paris is foolish, though. He doesn't listen to her wording. And so when he agrees and says, yeah, 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 I'll take that, he thinks he's going to get Aphrodite. He thinks he's going to get love itself. And perhaps that's the mistake all young men make. When they enter into uh, yeah. love, they think they'll stay in that passionate love forever. They think Aphrodite will stay with him. But, well, as all men that have been in a long relationship know, and women, that passionate love dissipates and needs to be replaced by, you know, more understanding of your partner and their human foibles. And, well, Peterson suggests that perhaps you can get that initial state back eventually, but you have to work very hard for it. Mm-hmm. And, well, Paris makes that mistake and he, uh, he thinks that he's getting Aphrodite. Well, he's actually getting Helen. Helen happens to be married to Menelaus, which means he's going to have to go steal a woman from a man who offers him hospitality, which you might consider the worst thing you can possibly do to those. That's pretty good betrayal on the scale. Also, if, if these are a people who have just realized that their, their very value system is based on trust, which means you offer hospitality, which means you offer safety to strangers who come in after being part of a civilization, it kills strangers yeah. and a stranger comes in and then steals or takes from you. That is exactly the horrifying thing that you meant to keep from happening and why you kept them outside of walls. That is the snake coming into the garden. 
And so that is the most horrifying thing possible to them, a breach of trust by somebody that you offer your trust to. And so fundamentally, again, we see breaking agreements being uh, between humans being that which destroys the society because the society is that which we create together through our what? Our mutual agreements. Well, yeah, it's, so, it's a kind of, uh, it, as the story portrays it, it's a, it's a contrast of these different virtues or what could be virtues, but which could also be sort of these instincts, these drives competing amongst themselves and not in the proper harmony, right? Like, like you po point out, like Zeus, he can't, he can't even arbitrate in this dispute. <laughs> it sort of just has to play yeah. itself out, you know? That's so, right. That's right. Man has to make his own mistakes yeah. and, um, he has to choose the wrong thing first, you might say, because in choosing Aphrodite, well, then when war comes, Paris has Aphrodite on his side, <laughs> but not Hera and Athena. <laughs> and so it, it does show you what you give up when you choose to follow a certain path. Yeah. And so you might say that he chose the only path that didn't ensure a certain sort of victory. And that path completely plays itself out in the destruction of his family, his friends, and his people. Yeah. And the redemption, the, the, the redemption of the Trojan people is left up to a, a later poet. And I think that's kind yes. of an interesting parallel to the, you know, the Garden of Eden story and the redemption left up to a later uh, religion. Yes. So to speak, you know? yes, because heaven is always in the future. It's that towards which you have to hope and strive in the, the present. Mm -hmm. Um, because of your fallen state, now that you're conscious and self-conscious and you can't do anything about it because there's a cherubim with a flame sword or a war has begun, well, yeah. then you got to pursue that good feeling in the future. I'd say that that's also represented by the fact that you feel that passionate love for somebody who you first enter into a relationship with. It disappears, but it can come back again in a more mature, more actual conscious form later on as you two accept yourselves for the full and flawed human beings that you actually are creating that sense of real trust because even though you're with somebody who you know the flaws of and who knows that you have flaws of you know that you'll help each other out or yeah. you trust that you will it's the best thing you've got it's it's uh, something that you can't know until you've uh, made that gamble though too right? yeah that's right that's right you know who knows what will happen when you fall, right? Is Scar going to put his paws on top of yours, give you a speech, and then throw you down to the antelope? Or is it going to be, you know, a friend sticking out a hand and trying to catch you? You don't know. So all you can do is trust, you know, and have some faith. And, well, yeah. that seems a lot better than the alternative. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Wes, this has been a great conversation. Um, uh, I hate putting some bookends on it, but – I, that might be the only moment we have to stop because this has been so interesting and it's incredible. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about, and I'm sorry to bring him up constantly, but he's the authority. I'm not uh, in terms of these, some of the facts that I've gotten and I haven't done the research myself, not yet anyway, yeah. but he says that when you're experiencing a sense of meaning, time seems to fall away. And well, gosh, it feels like I've been talking to you for hours, but only in the best possible way. And it hasn't, not, not in a dragging dolly, a sense of time sort of way. And it's like now time to plug back into reality where time is present. And thus, I guess plugging back into reality means doing something less meaningful, well, which is posting this podcast. 
you got to you got to do the you know the grunt work too until yeah, until you get some maybe get some uh, get a little a little following around you and then get get pass off some of the little duties to other people but until that point you know it's all it's all labor of love so oh yeah oh yeah i mean what what else is there to do but to labor for love yeah, uh, yeah but thanks thanks again for making the time and i look forward to continuing the conversation next time I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. Thank you, Wes. And I'll talk to you, well, potentially next week. Another, yeah, another week or two. Here we go. All right. Take care. See ya.